This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert, and I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure, because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week's guest is the actress Tamsin Gregg. She grew up in London in a household with her parents, two sisters, five lodgers and a handful of cats. Her mother had been an amateur dramatics and Tamsin absorbed by osmosis the yearning to perform at a young age. She graduated from the University of Birmingham with a first-class BA in drama and theatre and then worked at the Family Planning Association before getting her foot in the door with her role as Debbie Aldridge in The Archers. Since then, she has had a glittering career on both the stage and on television. She has starred in some of Britain's most loved sitcoms, from Black Books to Greenwing, and most recently, Friday Night Dinner. In this episode, we discuss what it's like to juggle parenthood with working life, her love of trampolining, and playing a baddie in Paramount's new drama, Sexy Beast, based on the cult classic gangster film of the noughties. Tamsin Gregg, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. And welcome to you also. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I've never been welcomed on the show before. And that feels so very lovely and tender. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're welcome here too. This is a shared space. And so you feel feel free to fill it. (laughs) Okay, start, start me off with what is the view from your sofa? So I'm not sitting on my sofa at the moment, so I'm going to imagine it about what happens when I'm sitting there. It's quite a big sofa so that uh, a number of people can sit on it next to one another, but without having to touch each other because um, we have kind of familial uh, space issues and also annoyance levels are quite high in our in our family I think they probably come from me I think it's genetic but like if I can see something somebody like fiddling with a finger like with something with a pen something I'm constantly stopping them because I obviously then I can't concentrate so uh the sofa's quite big and then opposite the sofa there's a there's a quite a big telly in the alcove and above the telly the entire wall is taken up by dvds like a kind of art installation from the 90s and on the other wall, the whole wall is taken up by CDs. So these, it's a very, it's a very retro feel because obviously we never play the CDs and we every now and then play the DVDs. So really it's just kind of like an art installation of, um, as our children probably think, just pure sadness. <laughs> I love that. I think children are very good at keeping parents very humble. When you do watch TV altogether, who gets control of the remote? Well, it's generally not me because everybody says this of my age. I'm not entirely sure. 
what it's for. <laughs> I mean, I know it does something, but I don't know how that happens. So someone else can can have it uh, um, and then be directed, obviously, by me. But we're generally quite, um, you know, if we do come together as a family, it takes quite a long time to work out the thing that we're going to watch because uh, it has to be there has to be um equality and equity and compromise and it takes hours and <laughs> yeah. um uh you know it's exhausting so by the time we do get to start watching the thing that we've chosen it's too late and then I'm asleep halfway through so I've got a, a reputation for falling asleep in in movies but <laughs> uh which I think is unfair <laughs> but there we go you know that's family life right Exactly. What do you enjoy watching on telly? Have you watched anything recently that really stuck? Well, I do love a show. Um, if I get into a show, then um, then that becomes me and my husband's golden slice of the evening. We'll go, oh, do you want to do a whatever? And um, and then we'll sneak away and do that, which has been, which is very lovely. And my dear mate, Sasha Bates, set up this, uh, created this uh, podcast called Shrink the Box, uh, where she, as a psychotherapist, is in conversation with um, Ben Bailey Smith, who's a who's an uh, actor, performer, writer, producer, does everything. And each week they put a different character from a different TV show on the psychiatrist's couch, and then they deconstruct them. And it's the most brilliant idea for a podcast. And so I've listened to all of those, but each week I go, oh, I, I won't listen to that because I don't know that show. But then I listen anyway, because it's so interesting. And then I go, oh, well, I've got to watch that now. So now I've got a massive list of shows that I've got to watch. But because of that show, Shrink the Box, Sasha's got me on to, like the last thing we watched was The Bear, which was has just been absolutely brilliant. The first episode, well, the first episode I found a little bit like, uh, I, I'm never, ever going to I'm never going to get through this because this is too stressful. It's too intense. I feel I feel really anxious. This is not like nice evening golden light telly. But I I persisted and I'm so glad I did because now we've just come to the end and I'm so moved by that whole story and the you know Jamie Lee Curtis being brilliant. It's beautifully beautifully uh, performed. And my friend Sasha said this beautiful thing on her podcast that the the kitchen represents his neurological system and I thought that was such a brilliant idea where the environment is a character in the show but also represents his internal distress and uh, as soon as I'd heard that from her I was just like oh man I'm on a different planet now with this so yeah we, we've really really enjoyed that my moments of like deep uh, tele comfort like for example on New Year's Eve I was getting a bit sick you can probably hear the the, the gunk in my nose uh, I've been sick so I didn't go out on New Year's Eve so I stayed in and watched Gone Fishing Hogmanay which is kind of like the culmination of that Bob Mortimer and Paul Whitehouse series which is so full of beauty it, it brings me to tears every single time i watch it then the repair shop the christmas um episode and oh, then yes. uh, a couple of episodes of seinfeld so that for me and also if if everyone had left them i'd probably have watched a tiny bit of Gogglebox, but i wouldn't have told anybody about that because that's my secret like dipping crusty bread in salad cream moment the thing you don't tell anybody that you do uh so those are my yeah gone fishing i think is um is is literally the best television I've ever watched in my entire life. Is there a radio programme that you enjoy? Well, I love, as I've talked about Shrink the Box, I've, I love podcasts. And so I, um, I'll more naturally navigate towards a podcast, especially if I'm uh, walking the dog. Mm. Uh, and it also means that if I've got it, uh, AirPods in, I'm less likely to be talked to. Uh, it, it sounds like I'm a very um, uh, incomplete human being that I go outside, but I don't want to talk to anybody. But no, I do love a podcast, and um, I, I didn't really listen to podcasts, and then was suggested one uh, which was called Dead Eyes which is this absolutely brilliant podcast about um, an actor who was the only actor who was who was uh, asked to leave the show Band of Brothers. And so he goes on this big trail to find out why he was sacked from it when so many other people kind of like launched their careers. That was a brilliant one. And so I now more will do a, a podcast than a than a, a radio show. But if obviously I'm in the, driving in the car, I'll be Radio 4 until it all gets too much because you can only take in so much heartache and disaster and then I'll go to uh, Radio 6. 
That's very nice. I want to cast it back to your child. You were born in 1966 and grew up in northwest London with your parents, two sisters, five lodgers and some cats. That must have been an incredibly busy household. What was your childhood like? Yeah, it was. It was. You're right. It was quite a busy uh, flat. Uh, We never had stairs. So when I got my first flat, which was a first floor flat, I was very excited to go upstairs, even though they weren't technically mine because... It was a flat, but the the flat that we lived in in Kilburn was it was pretty grim, and it was at a long corridor with rooms off it. So there were five bedrooms and a sitting room and a really horrible kitchen and what what my mum used to call scullery because I think she thought that she was the lady of the manor and therefore had staff and a scullery when it's not true. You know, we lived in a shit. It was a shithole, and one side of the building got sun, and so they put in all their nice furniture because they used to live abroad. And they came back and then they put their nice furniture in that side of the house where there was the sitting room and their bedroom. And and then the other side of the flat um, was this, the room that my sisters stepped in, never got sunlight and looked out onto a sort of part of the communal gardens that always got flooded because there was lots of drains there. So um, there was quite a lot of uh, black mould and ice in the winter on the winds, wind, on the windows, which we had to scrape off. And then we had to go out and unblock the drain whenever it got um, filled up with food and people's hair. So I'm, I'm, I'm painting a beautiful picture. And we had, so there were 10 of us in this flat and there was one, one loo. So wow. I did spend a lot of my childhood weeing and sometimes don't tell anyone pooing into a bucket out the back door because you just couldn't get into the loo. So, um, yeah, happy times. I always imagine, and I don't know if this is fair, actors to realise at quite a young age that they enjoy the arts and then putting on plays. And if you've got that many people, surely that's a great audience. Well, you would think so. (laughs) (laughs) However, the lodgers were mostly um, students from the Far East or um, or East Asia, so they were out, you know, working. And if they were at home, they were studying. So we didn't see much of them. And also there wasn't a kind of, um, you know, they weren't welcome into our family as such. You know, they were very much lodging in the ha- in the flat. My dad was much older than my mum. So he, he became a sort of stay-at-home dad, which was very, very unusual at the time. My dad was born in 1905 and became a stay-at-home dad in his 60s when we were very little. And so mum was then out going out to work. So it was a very odd setup. Of course, we didn't think it was odd. We just thought it was, that's our normal life. So people would say to me when I was out with him, um, oh, you're out with your granddad. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? Of course, it's not my granddad. This is my dad. Why don't you know that? So dad was at home. And so I did used to sort of make up stories and... If he, if I got him to sit down, then I'd sort of perform them, and sometimes by candlelight, which just could be incredible, was incredible, incredibly dangerous. But he, he always fell asleep because he was an old man. He was really tired, and it was in the afternoon. Who doesn't want to have a nap in the afternoon? I definitely do. So there wasn't, there was an audience of sorts, but they weren't particularly. There was, there was, de- you know, your typical matinee audience who just come in from the cold. And when was it that that idea of wanting to be an actress or an actor first entered your brain? Well, my mum had done, when they lived abroad, mum got involved in the sort of expat community of um, amateur dramatics, which was which ha- had quite a lot of status in those countries. So it was sort of semi-professional. So she'd a- always done that and really enjoyed that, but it had always been a hobby. So, I, you know, I'd sort of seen her old makeup bag and her scrapbook that she kept with the stuff that she did so I knew that it was a thing that she had enjoyed and she was a sort of performer in life anyway she was born in Leeds and had an awful childhood in Leeds but then left Leeds and then so left everything and became very very grand very posh and uh, so she was always sort of performing and I think if you're around that as a child you I think children sort of sense when things are not quite true. Uh, so I think the idea of performing, of of sort of covering up was, you know, by, there by osmosis. And then I, I went at secondary school, I did, um, I did a lot of um, plays at school and really, really enjoyed that, those. And sort of that was the thing that would get me through school to the end of the day if there was going to be rehearsals, or, either that or trampolining club. Two hobbies that go hand in hand. And 
don't know if this is an overshare, but I feel like trampolining always makes me need a wee. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, it is a, it is an <laughs> issue. Um, and certainly now that I've had, <laughs> now that I've had three children, those, you know, those days are done. You know, my, I have, I've had to, I've had to do a little, um, goodbye ceremony to my, uh, to my tramp. So I did love it. I did love that trampoline that I suppose it's a little bit like that that sense of flying of being just airborne for a bit and then of course I did a bit of tra- of um parachuting when I was a you know from when I was about 18 so I think that was always in there that sense of just being sort of held in a different way and sometimes I get that feeling when you know when, when I'm doing theatre where if there's a particularly wonderful moment that happens, you never know if they're going to happen or when they're going to happen. They happen at different times in the show where everything goes very, very still and people sort of lean in. And that feel, it's got a similar sort of feel. I've never sort of voiced this before. It's got a similar kind of feel to it, that thing of being suspended in, in, a, in a completely new way that makes you see things differently and breathe differently. Mm, like a fearlessness as well, or an ability not to fear something that is quite unusual. Yeah, to know that something should be frightening, but to step into it anyway, because something might happen that's wondrous. Do you still get nervous on stage? Oh, yeah, 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 very, very much. I was just doing a thing um, at the um, the Globe um, indoor space just at the weekend. It was a fundraiser for Refuge, the charity, this amazing play called Shakespeare's Women by Lorian Haynes, and it was um, where she collected all of Shakespeare's um, female characters and put them in a new play and imagined that they had all survived, but that they were all therefore survivors and part of a uh, um, an uh, abuse survivors group. And uh, each of the characters were Shakespeare characters, and uh, so we rehearsed for three days, and then did two performances on on, on Sunday as this uh, fundraiser, as I say. And you know, I'm reading from a script, and someone is reading out the stage directions. I mean, literally nothing can go wrong, and it's so cold in the theatre, but I'm pouring sweat. I mean, so what is your body doing to say, mate? You really need to. You need. There's a lot of danger here. Um, you need to get out of here. And I'm pouring sweat. I'm freezing cold. I'm terrified that I literally won't be able to read the words that are in front of me because there are 350 people there. And yet there was, you know, it was brilliant. It's a really interesting play. So, yeah, I don't think that's ever going to go away. And maybe that's, it's necessary for performance that um, maybe for all art, that like you say, there is that sense of danger that needs to be leaned into. Do you feel that on screen as well? Is there a, is there a nervousness there? Or is that just because there's not a live audience, it feels different? Yeah, it's a different kind of uh, fear that, um, because you, if, you know, if, you, if you mess up, you can just do it again. I think the, um, my fear is the sort of the, my terror of time-wasting that there are so many people on set and, you know, if I'm not prepared, I'm not word ready and I'm not character ready. And also, because I get the giggles as well, I, you know, I find, I find the whole (laughs) business quite um, ridiculous. And um, the only thing actually, I've done that a couple of times, well, a few, a lot on film sets where I'll get the giggles and then, you know, we have to go again and again and again. And one time I saw this very wonderful DOP and I saw him just drop his head down and the look of disappointment in his whole body totally cut through my giggles. Oh dear. And it it was a really interesting moment of like, you, actually you're just, you're just wasting people's time. They would just rather actually be at home with their families than listening to you uh, wet yourself. It's just, it's pathetic. So I, then I stopped. Sometimes you can't help it. And I think often when you know that you shouldn't, that makes it 10 times worse. Oh, it ten times. And also if, you, if you're if you facing a, another giggler, you know, Simon Bird, who's this brilliant actor who, who plays one of my sons in Friday Night Dinner, is a terrible, terrible giggler. And if I know that he's <laughs> he's struggling, it's, te- it's, it's, it's like going and stamping on a man with a broken leg. I, you know, all I should do is not laugh 
and therefore help him. But I don't. I just go and make his injury much, much worse. And I just join in and then we're, we're lost. It's a, it's shameful. <laughs> but also quite funny. It's very funny. Um, you spoke before about taking a break from theatre after having your children and also having a nanny on set for the first decade of their lives whilst you worked. And I think it's really important that we have these conversations about working and parenthood. How did you juggle both? And they're doing lots of campaigns for um, having childcare on sets in America. Do you think that's something that would actually even the playing field or, or help working parents? Yeah, I think they're very, very important conversations to be having. Uh, back when I was uh, doing most of my telly through the sort of late 90s and then through the 2000s, the way that I was able to do it was that I have an incredible husband who at the time was also an actor and just went, well, what do we do to make it possible for you to work? Because, you know, he wanted me to be able to carry on. I wanted him to be able to carry on. So we just thought, well, how can we do this together? When more work started sort of coming my way, sort of a bit of a snowball effect. And this, someone said, it was very interesting, when um, when I was pregnant with my first child, I said, I'm, I'm really nervous, you know, how do we do this? How do we carry, how do I carry on working? And someone said, this beautiful thing said, a babies are born with a loaf of bread under their arms. And I, and I tried to wait, I thought, what, he's going to be a baker? What are you trying to say? I don't, you know, is, is he a future Gales? What are you talking about? But what that means is that, is that the baby comes provided for. And um, so it's a, um, then a matter of trust that, uh, you know, the baby comes and and you will have enough. You know, I often didn't trust that. But it was weird because the more babies I had, the more work I seemed to get. So, you know, maybe things go quiet because I stopped having children and I shouldn't have done that. No, no, I had to stop <laughs> having children. But then, so then, yeah, we also had this brilliant nanny who um, came to work with me. And um, it, it was really... Looking back, it's really, really hard. And talking to other actors now who are having children and having to make those sorts of decisions, I think it is a, a, a better environment now where people are braver about saying, well, you know, if you want me, then you will need to provide for me and what I'm doing here, which is, you know, feeding another human being. I mean, it was possible for me to do it and have a nanny on set because I was number one on the call sheet. You know, I don't know that they would have done that for someone who was a day player who was coming in and was number 25, do you know what I mean? Which is awful because mm. it, it it should be provided for. Because if you want women in the workplace, because it's such a good idea, you know, we have to deal with the consequences of that. So, yes, I was looked after brilliantly by a wonderful husband and a great very supportive agent and very supportive producers you know Verity Lambert who was producing Love Suit when I did it she was the one who uh, had me contractually obliged to stop filming at 11 o'clock in the morning and three o'clock in the afternoon so that I could breastfeed which um is uh, you know it's un it was unheard of back then um of course there are consequences to being a working parent and uh you know then you only work that out when your children are grown and um you know that sort of removal from your child uh ha has an impact on both you and the child but i do think that it's also very good for workplaces to see the reality of childcare and what it the shape that it takes now because it is different and, uh, you know, we have to make space for the difference. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, 
free shipping and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 40%. Up to 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting what you said, and I hadn't really put that into perspective of if you have a body of work behind you and you're well-known and you've established yourself in your career, you have different... I guess, hold or sway over what happens. And, and you see that more and more as women establish themselves, especially women establish themselves in their careers, their ability to say, uh, no, I don't want to do that in, in regards to a number of things. Um, or I want a more interesting character or I want this or that. But it's actually, like you say, it's the people that are emerging or the people who are playing slightly smaller characters that are as essential to the script that and maybe don't have those rights or ability to have that conversation yeah and you know along the way I've had people other actors female actors asking me you know saying oh, look I'm pregnant should I just not tell them <laughs> because they don't want to lose the job because there was a time when people when when it was okay for them to say oh if you're pregnant well you, you'll need we'll need to recast you because it's just it's not going to work out for us and I was I would always you know, sort of gently encourage people to just be honest with it. Because if you're, if people don't know that you're carrying a child, you know, it's such a difficult and momentous thing to be doing, <laughs> to be growing a child. It's, it takes so much of you, you, you know, so everybody needs to know about that, not to be sort of hypersensitive and, you know, to let you lie down every seven minutes, but, you know, just to have that consciousness of something extraordinary is going on in this body. <laughs> and if you want that person to be a, a working person, then you know, we have to really celebrate and honour that and, you know, not hide it away and pretend that everything's fine. We'll just, you know, we'll get, we'll, we'll sort it out. You know, let's let's sort it out together. In the early noughties, you play Fran in Black Books and Dr. Caroline in Green Wing. And uh, it felt very much a golden era for British sitcoms. What was that like to be a part of? Well, weirdly, like with many things in your life, you don't know you're a part of something until, you know, you're 10 years out of it. You know, like when you're rowing in a boat, you don't know where you're going. You're just seeing things that have floated away from you, past you. And... um at the time, I it's interesting we talk about uh, about black books and and the, the in our conversation about pregnancy because I got black books when I had just found out that I was pregnant with my uh, second child, and so I was sit I went to the second audition and just thought I don't what is the point in being here because as soon as they find out that I'm pregnant I'm just I'm not going to I'm not going to be offered this. So I sat in the interview going, I'm not going to tell them, I'm not going to tell them, because I'll just, I'll just enjoy the interview, I'll just enjoy the audition. And then at the end of it, they said, well, we'd like you to, we'd like to offer it to you. And I was so shocked, because I was then suddenly in that point of like, well, what do you do? What do I say now? And I said, okay, I'm going to, I have to be honest now. I have to come clean and I'm, I am actually pregnant. So, you know, if you want to offer it to somebody else, I, you know, I totally get that. And th there was this terrible silence in the room. <laughs> And then they all just said, no, no, we, we want you to do it. And then they, and then they worked it out. And so the, the scenes where I was in had to be in a sort of a tight dress. We did early on in it. And that's why I wear a lot of big, um, shirts and, uh, ties and things and scarves because I'm covering up this increasing bump. <laughs> so I was really just trying to not be, uh, completely mad in, a show that I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't know quite know what the character was doing. And also I was pregnant. So, you know, there's a level of weirdness going on there anyway. But apparently um, Dylan and, and Bill, who are in the show with me, both said later that they didn't know what they were doing. And because I was like what they called a proper actor, they just were watching me. Whereas I thought, well, they're proper stand-ups. <laughs> they know about comedy. So I was just watching them and just copying them. So we were all just sort of like copying each other and hoping for the best. And then, and then of course, then it did work. And 
So actually what I take from that is just copy the best person in the room, which is what I've done really with my career. <laughs> I love that. When you play a character, for example, Dr. Caroline in Greenwing, and you put on a character's hat and see inside their world, does it make you feel more empathetic for what those people do in real life? I know obviously it's a comedy, but you know, given what's happening at the moment with junior doctor strikes, does it feel when you've kind of gone into that world that you perhaps align with those people more? The thing that I found really amazing about that show, which we didn't know what we were making at the time. So all the, the brilliant editing on that, which came from Victoria Pyle and, um, the the team where they you know that it gets sped up and then slowed down and the music is very very integral you know we didn't know that's what was going to happen and so when they would say well just like walk down that corridor I was like this is going to be a really boring show because that takes quite a long time to walk down that corridor not knowing of course they were going to speed it up and put music to it and it would be hilarious and beautiful so I, I was in a sort of state of confusion a lot of the time doing the show, but also the sort of embarrassment of being in a real hospital with real sick people around us a lot of the time. And so I, I, I just, I wasn't able quite so much to um, investigate their world as sort of be slightly ashamed that we were getting in the way really of them of them doing the good work but however since the show has been out the number of people who work in the nhs who've said to me oh my goodness that show and i say hey on i'm really sorry you know we're not we're not mocking what you do and they say no no you're not mocking what we do it's exactly like that and i which also i find quite frightening because if the nhs is really like greenwing then wow that's that is terrifying because all sorts of terrible things happen in that show I think there's a lot that goes on. There's a lot that goes on in those sorts of, in those wards and those buildings. And I mean, and also it's about survival. Comedy so much of the time is about how we find the joy and the hilarity and the ridiculousness of life in order to survive. And um, we did actually go on the, on a, a picket line. The whole Green Wing cast got together. Not this time when the when the doctors were uh, and junior doctors were um, striking, but back in the day, uh, I think sort of like like two thousand and thirteen. I think it was was that when the last one was. And so then suddenly, then standing with junior doctors on the picket lines. And, you know, we were dressed up in, in scrubs, in green scrubs, thinking, it's ridiculous, who do we think we are? But actually, standing with them and seeing the reality of the politics of what they do, you know, it's not just about doing the job. They've also got to fight to be properly remunerated for what they do. And that, I mean, that's exhausting, isn't it? Well, it seems like everybody's having to do that now, right? It's exhausting to say, yeah. well, I'm doing quite a good job here, so maybe you should, like, sort of pay me well or do good working conditions. I mean, why are we having to do that? Isn't that, like, shouldn't we be seeing that? Going, well, that, you're doing a great it's job. I, you know what? I think I want to pay you more for that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just just enough for what we're doing, you know? Yeah, enough, absolutely. Enough. Um, your role in episodes took you to America and I wondered if you were ever interested in doing more work across the pond and if it felt very different to making British TV. Well, the wonderful uh, secret about episodes is that it was made by a British production company, Hattrick, and therefore made in London. So I didn't actually have to go there. <laughs> so that was perfect. So I could actually stay at home. It was filmed in London. And then each series, we went there for a few weeks just to, to uh, film all the outdoor scenes of the hiking scenes and scenes on the beach and stuff. And in fact, the first series, we didn't do, we didn't go to LA at all. So it's, it was all wraparound green screen. It was just, it was miraculous. So it was like a, a, a heaven sent job because I could be on a American show, even though it was a British, um, American collaboration. It was a co-production, but I didn't have to go and live there because I didn't want to be away from, I've never wanted to be away from the, the children and so, and I've always set like a kind of three week thing. I would, the longest time that I've ever been away from them is three weeks. And then I'll, you know, have to check in and see them again. And they probably didn't want it, but I did. <laughs> so yeah, it was, um, it was, I couldn't have dreamt it up and it came my way and I'm, you know, eternally grateful. Another thing that seems to have emerged over recent years is this real consciousness about who we should be casting to play what roles. I mean, we saw, 
Uh, there was recently quite a big debate about uh, who should be playing LGBTQ plus characters, for instance. And we've also seen backlash for Anthony Hopkins playing the lead role in One Life, even though uh, Sir Nicholas Winton's family wanted him to play the role. And I think it's really interesting because I think it mirrors perhaps change also happening more generally in society where we're thinking about repercussions of our actions or having wider, more open conversations. What do you think about those conversations that are happening about actors being cast in different roles? And and do you think there should be restrictions? I think what it speaks about into really is, like you say, that the consciousness that we are making decisions now about casting, which are are, are slightly wider about um, the implications of how groups who are being represented um, or depicted might feel about a certain person playing it. You know, I think the fact that we are, our our eyes are being opened now and often by this, you know, these new generations coming through, the ones who are looking at it going, what? (laughs) Hold on, you did it like that. Why did you do it like that? Or what, you know, I think those are really valuable views and perspectives to take on board. I think it's just really about being very, very wise and very, very discerning about each project, about each uh, person that's being depicted, and to have the conversation open about, yes, who is the best person to play this, but also who is the best pl- person to play this at this time. You know, there's there was been a, uh, I, I was very nervous when we when they first cast Friday Night Dinner, and I went to Robert Popper, who I knew, who who wrote it, who is a Jewish man, and was writing a story about his family, his culturally Jewish family. And I said, you know, I have Jewish ancestors, but I'm not, I don't call myself Jewish, and you know, I'm nervous about the, I, I don't want to ever be seen to be creating a stereotype or falling into any kind of stereotypical groove that means that you're then not going to connect with the the truth of the characters and he said listen don't worry i i'm i'm not worried about that i i'm jewish i know what i'm writing i see what i'm seeing don't worry about that now i think that so that was back in 2009 if he was making the show now of course we would have very very different conversations so i think it's just really about being alive to the conversations that are happening now and to always be asking ourselves, is this right for now? And I think that that's, that's, that's only a good thing, right? Absolutely. And I think it is really interesting because I think a lot of the stuff, you know, that I grew up watching, Sex in the City, Friends, some of that stuff doesn't land anymore. And you do think, is it right just to cancel it completely? Question mark. I don't think so. I think it is about seeing it within the time frame that it was created. Yeah, I think I think whitewashing history is uh, is problematic because it's not being honest about who, who we've been. And you know, like like I said earlier on, uh, you know, people people are more perceptive than you realize, and that if there is something being missed out, I think somewhere we know it, <laughs> and then are just left with that sense of being hoodwinked and also I think it's there's an element of of us not uh, allowing ourselves to grow up into an into new perspectives if we say well that didn't happen if I say to myself that that didn't happen in a way I'm infantilizing myself because I'm not allowing the the grown-up part of myself to go yeah that did happen what am I going to do about that how am I going to live with that? Which I think is the process of growing up, you know, of growing into that level of self-understanding and self-forgiveness and then transformation. So, yeah, I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's very delicate and complicated and um, needs more air than often we allow it. Absolutely. Look, I want to come on to speak about your latest role in Paramount Plus prequel to Sexy Beast, the 2000 crime film, which I watched the original having never seen it before and was so pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed it. When did you watch the original and how did you find it? 
Well, I'm really glad that you've you've watched it. I think it sort of it, it does stand up. It's 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 amazing. I watched it when it first came out. So you know, given that I was having children and also working, and therefore you know a bit. But so I don't think I uh, I took it all in. But I you know, and I've watched it since then. But I, I think as a piece of art, it's really. It's really intriguing. I think the performances are brilliant. I love the language in it. I love the... Um, Insane. Yeah. The language of the cinematography, I think, is really brilliant. You know, the, you realise at one point that the camera is attached to the massive boulder that's rolling down the hill that's about to smash into the back of Ray Winston's head and then is at the bottom of a swimming pool. You know, it's the, 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 the cinematic language is, is really intriguing. And I think m- matches the the robustness and the muscularity of the of the spoken language in it. So I, I I was really thrilled when the script came through because I knew the film, so I knew its context. So I I, I could I, I knew who these characters were, but of course the character that they they uh, wanted me to look at is is an invented one. You know she doesn't exist in the film. Yeah, it really surprised me. And, and please don't take this uh, in the wrong way. But uh, having heard you do interviews, you have the loveliest speaking voice. So soft. And I feel you instantly make people trust you. And then seeing you in this <laughs> was spine chilling because you are awful. <laughs> Cecilia is a horrible, horrible woman. Have you, have you w- watched any of the, of the episodes of the new show? I've seen the first one. So I see you when you're when you're speaking to John and you're speaking to him in the gambling arcade and mm. there's this look on your face of pure disgust and having seen the original and seeing Don as this very chaotic um quite troubled human being and the the way that he speaks and language makes you think that perhaps he's something mentally is is eating away inside and then seeing him in in this the prequel where he is um he's not as damaged maybe you see and the relationship with cecilia that's evil and how it forms him and and how perhaps it's a look at the the people that do bad things in in our society if that comes from their subjection to other hurt and and she's hurt too and that's why she behaves like that oh it's so brilliant i'm so glad to get your feedback on that so yeah thank you for you know watching it with such an open heart that's amazing um i think that's what i was so i was so uh excited by because you know casting directors can be generally often because they are forced to be you know, quite prescriptive. They, you know, they're told in the script what sort of person they want. They get those sorts of people in and then it's, you know, it's all quite straightforward. However, here's a secret. The casting director who, who cast Greenwing cast Sexy Beast. And I've known Rachel. We were actually, Rachel Freck and I were actually at did the same course at no we weren't the same course but we were at university together so she's known me since i was you know a late teenager and so was she and so she knew that this character had to be somebody who could play somebody who ter- it was somebody who was really terrifying but like you say really damaged but was not going to live from that damaged place was you know absolutely a survivor but could also play the the dark humor of her and uh, so rachel has you know seen that sort of those elements in my work and thought oh no she could she could do that and then i think the american team on it had seen my work on episodes and so they knew that i could um you know, I could tell a tale. And so it all came together in that way, which I was so thrilled at because it was, it's very unusual for, you know, really what we should be saying is if we're going on from our conversation about which actors should play which roles, it's like it should definitely be only people who, who live in London East 14 who should be in this show. <laughs> Actually, the reality is, so I think I'm probably the closest having grown up in Kilburn. You know, the two leads are Scottish <laughs> and then, and then Sarah Green is Irish. You know, we're all actors trying to inhabit a, a, a world that is not our own, which I do think is part of the craft as well. You know, we have to be given a bit of space to be to be imaginative and creative in that way. 
Absolutely. I mean, as soon as I started watching this series, so I, I watched the film and was blown away because I was instantly sucked into that world. And having grown up with, um, I was also living in Bethnal Green for a bit and, and hearing the kind of East London accents, you know, I, I lived so close to where the Craterwinds used to go to the pub and I was thinking oh my gosh I, I'm back there but then in the prequel I was hoping when when something's so beautifully done you think oh please approach it with the same level of energy and instantly I was taken back to that era there's a, a glamour to it uh, intrigue there's it's kind of feels very sex drugs brutal crime and it feels such a far cry from today's society even though it's set in the 90s why do you think we're so obsessed with that era oh my goodness I'm so I'm so thrilled by your energy about this I literally I think maybe you should just do all my interviews for me because that's all the sort of stuff that I should be saying about it so thank you for that um, I think they've done a really brilliant um, amalgam of the music the visuals the um, the you know, you can kind of smell the petrol of those of those cars. You know that it was a. You, you can get the smell of it in your nostrils, and um, the way that their language is inhabited. You know, they're very embodied, which is so brilliantly uh, demonstrated also in the way that they they dress themselves and the way that they present themselves. So I just think it's a. You know, we all have something in us that draws us to a nostalgia. You know, it, it, you know, if 10 people were sitting around now just talking about, well, what do you remember from the early 90s? That we would instantly think about the music. We'd think about the, um, the food that we were eating. You know, the, the fact that there were still wimpies then and you'd pop into Woolworths to nick something. You know, we, we'd very quickly be drawn into Nostalgia Alley. And because it's not, and this is not a period piece, it, but it is a look into just a little bit further back from where those characters are in the film to see, well, how did they, how did they get there into this world that, like you say, is now so different? And given that it's in, in the film, it's now in Spain and London is so different to that. You know, there's a real grubbiness about it and, but, you know, a, a, a lived wellness in the grubbiness. I think it's just, it's really tantalising and um, there's something delicious about it, even though it is uncompromising on its uh, depiction of the consequences of violence and 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 the 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 struggle that is required to to survive violence do you love playing a baddie what is interesting about my age now is that i only seem to be playing baddies at the moment <laughs> So uh, it might be to do with the fact that I am this age and people don't quite know what to do with me and my old face. And, you know, my resting face is quite frightening. So maybe people have seen that, that, you know, that's, that's, well, there's, that's a gold mine, that, that miserable old face. It is quite hard to access that kind of rage because Cecilia is fueled by rage the fact that she has saved herself and her younger brother Don which is the character that Ben Kingsley plays in the film she has saved them both from an abusive uh, family member in a very violent way but what she's done is that she's shown to this younger boy when she was also a child that she can kill monsters she can get rid of the monsters, which is really what all parents are seeking to reassure their children about, is that I, I, I will stand between you and the monsters. But because Cecilia is so damaged herself, she does it in a really damaged way. So, you know, there is something very distressing about inhabiting that story and, and accessing that kind of rage. And I did... um yeah, she's she's not in. She comes in like one or two scenes per per episode, which I think is probably a good thing because you know, like anchovy in a dish, you don't want too much; it overwhelms it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but it's enough <laughs> to to go. Hang on a minute. What is that taste? What what level of influence is that character wielding over these other supposedly terrifying men? Because she is the top of the pyramid. And how has she got there? I think it's uh, it's really, 
you know, I don't think about the idea of playing goodies and buddies. It's a very long answer to your question. A very good question. It's not about, um, am I playing a goodie or am I playing a baddie? I'm also, when people say, do you prefer comedy or do you prefer drama? I'm not looking at that. I'm looking at what is the truth of this person? What has been their experience? What has have they survived? And I remember someone saying a really great question. People, the question that people come up with is, is, well, what is wrong with her? What is wrong with you? And actually, that is the worst possible question to ask. Instead of what is wrong with her, you should be asking what's happened to her. And, and then you're on a journey of compassion and curiosity and intrigue and potential redemption. And then it's really, really exhilarating. It would be remiss of me not to ask about The Archers. It's a show that's beloved by thousands. And I feel like if you're part of that community, perhaps even though it is radio, do you get recognised more by Archers fans because they're so uh, committed to the show or telly people? <laughs> when people come up to me, I've got, I, I've got, they've got that look in their eye. They're, they're going to say something and they go, oh, can I? And I know that they've sort of noticed they want to have a word. And I've got about one second to work out what it is they know, they know me from. And I try and guess. And I, and I, and often I'll go, oh, it's the archers. And often I'm wrong. And, um, and, and they'll say something else. But because I'm now quite known for my visual stuff, people who listened to the archers, um, way back when, uh, now know that 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 I'm the one that that plays that who sort of bobs in and bobs it was more away. I'm much more away than I am present, really. But a very interesting thing happened when I was walking the dog one time, and this woman came up to me and was furious that I was not present at the funeral of my character's mother. And the reason was is because I was away filming, and so I couldn't get there. But she she was really angry with me, and. Uh, that was quite a peculiar moment because I wanted to say to her, I'm really sorry that it, it meant that much to you. But also I wanted to say to her, it's a radio show. <laughs> it's a radio show and I'm an actor <laughs> and I was doing something else. Do you know what I mean? It's like that. It, it, it's quite a peculiar confusion. Absolutely. And especially when people feel so strongly about it and it's one of those programs you can't help but think, okay, it, it's not my entire life. Just a, just a, a good, a good job that I did. Listen, I was, re I'm really grateful that that, that, that job came along when I was so early into my career. Uh, I think if I hadn't had that continuity early on, I don't know whether I would have made it because I, I, I'd wonder if I have the stamina to keep going. So I'm so grateful that that was there for me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that it still has its own wonderful life. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with Dame Emma Thompson or David Tennant. Both episodes can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing. <laughs>